Book One, Chapter Three, Part One of History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume One by Henry Charles Lee. Book One, Chapter Three, The Jews and the Conversos, Part One. To appreciate properly the position of the Jews in Spain, it is requisite first to understand the light in which they were regarded elsewhere throughout Christendom during the medieval period. It has already been seen that the Church held the Jew to be a being deprived by the guilt of his ancestors of all natural rights save that of existence. The privileges accorded to the Jews and the social equality to which they were admitted under the Carlovingians provoked the severest animadversions of the churchmen. About 890, Stephen the Sixth writes to the Archbishop of Narbonne that he has heard with mortal anxiety that these enemies of God are allowed to hold land, and that Christians dealt with these dogs and even rendered service to them. It is true that Alexander III maintained the ancient rule that they could repair their existing synagogues but not build new ones, and Clement III honored himself by one of the rare human utterances in their favor, prohibiting their forced conversion, their murder or wounding or spoliation, their deprivation of religious observances, the exaction of forced service unless such was customary, or the violation of their cemeteries in search of treasure. And, moreover, both of these decrees were embodied by Gregory the Ninth in the canon law. Yet these prohibitions only point out to us the manner in which popular zeal applied the principles enunciated by the Church, and when the Council of Paris in 1212 forbade, under pain of excommunication, Christian midwives to attend a Jewess in labor, it shows that they were authoritatively regarded as less entitled than beasts to human sympathy. How popular hostility was aroused and strengthened is illustrated in a letter addressed in 1208 by Innocent III to the Count of Nevers, Although, he says, the Jews against whom the blood of Jesus Christ cries aloud are not to be slain, lest Christians should forget the divine law, yet are they to be scattered as wanderers over the earth, that their faces may be filled with ignominy, and they may seek the name of Jesus Christ. Blasphemers of the Christian name are not to be cherished by princes in oppression of the servants of the Lord but are rather to be repressed with servitude of which they rendered themselves worthy when they laid sacrilegious hands on him who had come to give them true freedom, and they cried that his blood should be upon them and their children. Yet when prelates and priests intervene to crush their malice, they laugh at excommunication, and nobles are found who protect them. The Count of Nevers is said to be a defender of the Jews. If he does not dread the divine wrath, Innocent threatens to lay hands on him and punish his disobedience. 
the Cistercian Casarius of Hesterbach, in his Dialogues for the Moral Instruction of his fellow monks, tells several stories which illustrate the utter contempt felt for the feelings and rights of Jews, and in one of them there is an allusion to the curious popular belief that Jews had a vile odor, which they lost in baptism, a belief prolonged, at least in Spain, until the seventeenth century was well advanced. Even so enlightened a prelate as Cardinal Pierre de Ali in 1416 reproves the sovereigns of Christendom for their liberality towards the Jews, which he can attribute only to the vile love of gain. If Jews are allowed to remain, it should be only as servants to Christians. General prohibitions of maltreatment availed little when prelate and priest were busy in inflaming popular aversion, and popes were found to threaten any prince hardy enough to interpose and protect the unfortunate race. Of course, under such impulsion there was scant ceremony in dealing with these outcasts in any way that religious ardor might suggest. When, in 1009, the Saracens captured Jerusalem and destroyed the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the rage and indignation of Europe assumed so threatening a form that multitudes of Jews took refuge in baptism. When religious exultation culminated in the Crusades, it seemed to those who assumed the cross a folly to redeem Palestine while leaving behind the impious race that had crucified the Lord, and everywhere in 1096 the assembling of crusaders was the signal for Jewish massacre. It would be superfluous to recount in detail the dreary catalogue of wholesale slaughters which for centuries disgraced Europe, whenever fanaticism or the disappearance of a child gave rise to stories of the murder rite, or a blood-stained host suggested sacrilege committed on the sacrament, or some passing evil such as an epidemic, aroused the populace to bloodshed and rapine. The medieval chronicles are full of such terrible scenes, in which cruelty and greed assumed the cloak of zeal to avenge God, and when, in rare instances, the authorities protected the defenseless, it was ascribed to unworthy motives, as in the case of Johann von Krebach, Bishop of Speyer, who, in 1096 not only saved some Jews but beheaded their assailants and was accused of being heavily bribed. Nor did Frederick Barbarossa and Ludwig of Bavaria escape similar imputations. It was safer and more profitable to combine piety and plunder, as when, in April 1182, Philip Augustus ordered all Jews to leave France by St. John's Day, confiscating their landed property and allowing them to take their personal effects. His grandson, the saintly Louis, resorted without scruple to replenishing his treasury by ransoming the Jews, and the latter's grandson, Philippe le Bel, was still more unscrupulous in 1306, when, by a concerted movement, he seized all the Jews in his dominions, stripped them of property, and banished them under pain of death. In England, King John, in 1210, cast Jews into prison and tortured them for ransom, and his grandson, Edward I, followed the example of Philip Augustus so effectually that Jews were not allowed to return until the time of Cromwell. 
Spain remained so long isolated from the movements which agitated the rest of Christendom that the abhorrence for the Jew taught by the Church and reduced to practice in so many ways by the people was late in development. In the deluge of the Saracen conquest and in the fierce struggles of the early reconquest, the antipathy so savagely expressed in the Gothic legislation seemed to pass away, possibly because there could have been but few Jews among the rude mountaineers of Galicia and Asturias. It is true that the Visigothic laws in the Romance version known as the Fuero Jusco remained nominally in force. It is also true that a law was interpolated in the Fuero, which seems to indicate a sudden recrudescence of fanaticism after a long interval of comparative toleration. It provides that if a Jew loyally embraces the faith of Christ, he shall have license to trade in all things with Christians, but if he subsequently relapses into Judaism, his person and property are forfeit to the king. Jews persisting in their faith shall not consort with Christians, but may trade with each other and pay taxes to the king. Their houses and slaves and lands and orchards and vineyards which they may have bought from Christians, even though the purchase be of old date, are declared confiscated to the king, who may bestow them on whom he pleases. If any Jew trades in violation of this law, he shall become a slave of the king with all his property. Christians shall not trade with Jews. If a noble does so, he shall forfeit three pounds of gold to the king. On transactions of more than two pounds, the excess is forfeit to the king, together with three doblas. If the offender is a commoner, he shall receive three hundred lashes. The date of this law is uncertain, but it presupposes a considerable anterior period of toleration, during which Jews had multiplied and had become possessed of landed wealth. To what extent it may have been enforced we have no means of knowing, but its observance must only have been temporary, for such glimpses as we get of the condition of the Jews up to the fourteenth century are wholly incompatible with the fierce proscription of the Gothic laws. As the Spanish kingdoms organized themselves, the Fuero Jusco for the most part was superseded by a crowd of local fueros, cartas pueblas, and customs defining the franchises of each community, and we have seen in the preceding chapter how in these both Moor and Jew were recognized as sharing in the common rights of citizenship, and how fully the freedom of trade between all classes was permitted. In 1251 the Fuero Jusco was formally abrogated in Aragon by Jaime I, who forbade it to be cited in the courts a measure which infers that it had practically become obsolete. In Castile it lingered somewhat longer, and traces of its existence are to be found in some places until the end of the 13th century. These, however, are not to be construed as referring to the provisions respecting Jews, which had long been superseded. In fact, the Jews formed too large and important a portion of the population to be treated without consideration. The sovereigns involved permanently in struggles with the Saracen and with mutinous nobles 
found it necessary to utilize all the resources at their command, whether in money, intelligence, or military service. In the first two of these the Jews stood preeminent, nor were they remiss in the latter. On the disastrous field of Zalaka in 1086, 40,000 Jews are said to have followed the banner of Alfonso VI, and the slaughter they endured proved their devotion, while at the defeat of Ucles in 1108 they composed nearly the whole left wing of the Castilian host. In 1285 we hear of Jews and Moors aiding the Aragonese in their assaults on the retreating forces of Philippe le Hardy. As regards money, the traffic and finance of Spain were largely in their hands, and they furnished with the Moors the readiest source from which to derive revenue. Every male who had married or who had reached the age of twenty paid an annual poll tax of three gold maravedis. There were also a number of imposts peculiar to them, and in addition they shared with the rest of the population in the complicated and ruinous system of taxation, the ordinary and extraordinary servicios, the pedidas and the ayudas, the sacos and pastos and the alcabalas. Besides this, they assisted in supporting the municipalities or the lordships and prelacies under which they lived, with the tallas, the pastos, the ninth or eleventh of merchandise, and the peajes and the barcajes, the pontazgos and the portazgos, or tolls of various kinds, which were heavier on them than on Christians. And, moreover, the church received from them the customary tithes, oblations, and first fruits. The revenues of the Jewish alhamas, or communities, were always regarded as among the surest resources of the crown. The shrewd intelligence and practical ability of the Jews, moreover, rendered their services in public affairs almost indispensable. It was in vain that the Council of Rome in 1078 renewed the old prohibitions to confide to them functions which would place them in command over Christians, and equally in vain that, in 1081, Gregory the Seventh addressed to Alfonso the Sixth a vehement remonstrance on the subject, assuring him that to do so was to oppress the Church of God and exalt the synagogue of Satan, and that in seeking to please the enemies of Christ he was contemning Christ himself. In fact, the most glorious centuries of the Reconquest were those in which the Jews enjoyed the greatest power in the courts of kings, prelates, and nobles in Castile and Aragon. The treasuries of the kingdoms were virtually in their hands, and it was their skill in organizing the supplies that rendered practicable the enterprises of such monarchs as Alfonso VI and VII, Fernando III, and Jaime I. To treat them as the Goths had done, or as the Church prescribed, had become a manifest impossibility. Under such circumstances it was natural that their numbers should increase, until they formed a notable portion of the population. Of this an estimate can be made from a repartimiento, or assessment of taxes, in 1284, which shows that in Castile they paid a poll tax of 2,561,855 gold maravedis, 
which at three maravedis per head infers a total of 853,951 married or adult males. This large aggregate was thoroughly organized. Each alhama or community had its rabbis with a rab mayor at its head. Then each district comprising one or more Christian bishoprics was presided over by a rab mayor and, above all, was the Gion or Nasi, the prince, whose duty it was to see that the laws of the race, both civil and religious, were observed in their purity. As we have already seen, all questions between themselves were settled before their own judges under their own code, and even when a Jew was prosecuted criminally by the king, he was punishable in accordance with his own law. So complete was the respect paid to this that their Sabbaths and other feasts were held inviolate. On these days they could not be summoned to court or be interfered with except by arrest for crime. Even polygamy was allowed to them. While their religion and laws were thus respected, they were required to respect Christianity. They were not allowed to read or keep books contrary to their own law or to the Christian law proselytism from christianity was punishable by death and confiscation and any insults offered to god the virgin or the saints were visited with a fine of ten maravedis or a hundred lashes yet if we are to believe the indignant lucas of tui writing about twelve thirty these simple restraints were scarce enforced the heretic cathari of leon he tells us were wont to circumcise themselves in order, under the guise of Jews, to propound heretical dogmas and dispute with Christians. What they dared not utter as heretics they could freely disseminate as Jews. The governors and judges of the cities listened approvingly to heresies put forth by Jews, who were their friends and familiars, and if any one inflamed by pious zeal angered these Jews, he was treated as if he had touched the apple of the eye of the ruler. They also taught other Jews to blaspheme Christ, and thus the Catholic faith was perverted. This represents a laxity of toleration impossible in any other land at the period. Yet the Spanish Jews were not wholly shielded from inroads of foreign fanaticism. Before the crusading spirit had been organized for the conquest of the Holy Land, ardent knights sometimes came to wage war with the spanish saracens and their religious fervor was aggrieved by the freedom enjoyed by the jews about ten sixty eight bands of these strangers treated them as they had been wont to do at home slaying and plundering them without mercy the church of spain was as yet uncontaminated by race hatred and the bishops interposed to save the victims for this they were warmly praised by Alexander II, who denounced the crusaders as acting either from foolish ignorance or blind cupidity. Those whom they would slay, he said, were perhaps predestined by God to salvation. He cited Gregory I to the same effect, and pointed out the difference between Jews and Saracens, the latter of whom make war on Christians and could justly be assailed. Had the chair of St. Peter always been so worthily filled, infinite misery might have been averted, and the history of Christendom been spared some of its most repulsive pages.
When the crusading spirit extended to Spain, it sometimes aroused similar tendencies. In 1108, Archbishop Bernardo of Toledo took the cross, and religious exultation was ardent. The disastrous rout of Uclase came and was popularly ascribed to the Jews in the Castilian army, arousing indignation which manifested itself in a massacre at Toledo and the burning of synagogues. Alfonso the Sixth vainly endeavored to detect and punish those responsible, and his death in 1109 was followed by similar outrages which remained unavenged. This was a sporadic outburst which soon exhausted itself. A severer trial came from abroad when, in 1210, the legate Arnaud of Narbonne led his crusading hosts to the assistance of Alfonso the Ninth. Although their zeal for the faith was exhausted by the capture of Calatrava, and few of them remained to share in the crowning glories of Las Naves de Tolosa, their ardor was sufficient to prompt an onslaught on the unoffending Jews. The native nobles sought in vain to protect the victims, who were massacred without mercy, so that Abravanel declares this to have been one of the bloodiest persecutions that they had suffered, and that more Jews fled from Spain than Moses led out of Egypt. This had no permanent influence on the condition of the Spanish Hebrews. During the long reigns of San Fernando III and Alfonso X of Castile and Jaime I of Aragon, covering the greater part of the 13th century, the services which they rendered to the monarchs were repaid with increasing favor and protection. After Jaime had conquered Menorca, he took, in 1247, all Jews settling there under the royal safeguard, and threatened a fine of a thousand gold pieces for wrong inflicted on any of them. And in 1250 he required that Jewish as well as Christian testimony be furnished in all actions civil or criminal, brought by Christians against Jews. So, when in 1306, Philippe le Bel expelled the Jews from France, and those of Majorca feared the same fate, Jaime II reassured them by pledging the royal faith that they should remain forever in the land, with full security for person and property, a pledge confirmed in 1311 by his son and successor, Sancho. In Castile, when San Fernando conquered Seville in 1244, he gave to the Jews a large space in the city, and, in defiance of the canons, he allotted to them four Moorish mosques to be converted into synagogues, thus founding the Alhama of Seville, destined to a history so deplorable. Alfonso X, during his whole reign, patronized Jewish men of learning, whom he employed in translating works of value from Arabic and Hebrew. He built for them an observatory in Seville, where were made the records embodied in the Alphonsine tables. He permitted those of Toledo to erect the magnificent synagogue now known as Santa Maria la Blanca, and Jews fondly relate that the Hebrew school, which he transferred from Cordova to Toledo, numbered 12,000 students. He was prompt to maintain their privileges, and when the Jews of Burgos complained that in mixed suits the alcaldes would grant appeals to him when the Christian suitor was defeated, 
while refusing them to defeated Jews, he at once put an end to the discrimination, a decree which Sancho the Fourth enforced with a penalty of a hundred maravedis when in 1295 the complaint was repeated. Yet Alfonso, in his systematic code known as the Partidas, which was not confirmed by the Cortes until 1348, allowed himself to be influenced by the teachings of the Church and the maxims of the imperial jurisprudence. He accepted the doctrine of the canons that the Jew was merely suffered to live in captivity among Christians. He was forbidden to speak ill of the Christian faith, and any attempt at proselytism was punished with death and confiscation. The murder rite was alluded to as a rumor, but in case it was practiced it was a capital offense, and the culprits were to be tried before the king himself. Jews were ineligible to any office in which they could oppress Christians. They were forbidden to have Christian servants, and the purchase of a Christian slave involved the death punishment. They were not to associate with Christians in eating, drinking, and bathing, and the amour of a Jew with a Christian woman incurred death. While Jewish physicians might prescribe for Christian patients, the medicine must be compounded by a Christian, and the wearing of the hateful distinctive badge was ordered under penalty of ten gold maravedis or of ten lashes. At the same time, Christians were strictly forbidden to commit any wrong on the person or property of Jews, or to interfere in any way with their religious observances, and no coercion was to be used to induce them to baptism, for Christ wishes only willing service. This was prophetic of evil days in the future, and the reign of Alfonso proved to be the culminating point of Jewish prosperity. The capital and commerce of the land were to a great extent in their hands. They managed its finances and collected its revenues. King, noble, and prelate entrusted their affairs to Jews, whose influence consequently was felt everywhere. To precipitate them from this position to the servitude prescribed by the canons required a prolonged struggle, and may be said to have taken its remote origin in an attempt at their conversion. In 1263 the Dominican Fray Pablo Cristia, a converted Jew, challenged the greatest rabbi of the day, Moshe ben Nachman, to a disputation which was presided over by Jaime I in his Barcelona palace. Each champion, of course, boasted of victory. The king dismissed Nachmanides not only with honor, but with a handsome reward of three hundred pieces of gold. But he ordered certain Jewish books to be burnt, and blasphemous passages in the Talmud to be expunged. He further issued a decree ordering all his faithful Jews to assemble and listened reverently to Fray Pablo whenever he desired to dispute with them, to furnish him with what books he desired, and to defray his expenses which they could deduct from their tribute. Two years later Fray Pablo challenged another prominent Hebrew, the rabbi Ben Astrich, chief of the synagogue of Herona, who refused until he had the pledge of King Jaime and of the great Dominican Saint Ramon de Peñafort, that he should not be held accountable for what he might utter in debate. But when, at the request of the bishop of Gerona, 
Ben Astrich wrote out his argument, the frailes Pablo and Ramon accused him of blasphemy, for it was manifestly impossible that a Jew could defend his strict monotheism and messianic belief without a course of reasoning that would appear blasphemous to susceptible theologians. The rabbi alleged the royal pledge. Jaime proposed that he should be banished for two years and his book be burnt, but this did not satisfy the Dominican frailes, and he dismissed the matter, forbidding the prosecution of the rabbi except before himself. Appeal seems to have been made to Clement the Fourth who addressed King Jaime in wrathful mood, blaming him for the favor shown to Jews and ordering him to deprive them of office and to depress and trample on them. Ben Ostrich especially, he said, should be made an example without, however, mutilating or slaying him. This explosion of papal indignation fell harmless, but the zeal of the Dominicans had been inflamed and in laboring for the conversion of the Jews they not unnaturally aroused antagonism towards those who refused to abandon their faith. So long before, as 1242, Jaime had issued an edict, confirmed by Innocent IV in 1245, empowering the mendicant friars to have free access to Juderias and Morerias, to assemble the inhabitants and compel them to listen to sermons intended for their conversion. The Dominicans now availed themselves of this with such vigor and excited such hostility to the Jews that Jaime was obliged to step forward for their protection. He assured the Aljamas that they were not accountable for what was contained in their books, unless it was to the dishonor of Christ, the Virgin, and the saints, and all accusations must be submitted to him in person. Their freedom of trade was not to be curtailed meat slaughtered by them could be freely exposed for sale in the juderias but not elsewhere dealing in skins was not to be interfered with their synagogues and cemeteries were to be subject to their exclusive control their right to receive interest on loans was not to be impaired nor their power to collect debts they were not to be compelled to listen to the friars outside of their juderias because otherwise they were liable to insult and dishonor. Nor were the frailes, when preaching in the synagogues, to be accompanied by disorderly mobs, but at most by ten discreet Christians. Finally, no novel limitations were to be imposed on them, except by royal command, after hearing them in opposition. End of Book 1, Chapter 3, Part 1